Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... Hello, welcome back to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and radio show. And of course, the purpose that we do with this is to help entrepreneurs and investors understand best practices to make sure that a company that gets started, that's got a great idea, got great passion, is can go the full distance all the way through to the exit that they're all striving for that's going to create the potential generational wealth from the success of that company. And sometimes, you know, I, I pride myself on being kind of a Jane of all trades, right? I, I interview so many people. I sit in, I advise companies. I've been a part of all these angel investor things where lots of companies come through, lots of investors ask questions on panels of stuff, on business plan competitions, mentoring, you know, a sponge of knowledge that comes to stuff. And I can tell you right now, the guest that we have on here today, Nick Frederick with Rebar Technology, is uh, he, when we were doing our first intro, get to know each other call, he says some things that I had never heard before, that I had, was new news to me, and most definitely are potential mitigating factors to avoid some of the gotchas that software as a service companies or companies that are looking at putting in some kind of subscription software element to their model, whether it's a, a automatic shipment of delivery of products or whether it's a membership in an organization or just, you know, their licensing of their software need to know about some of these things and how to anticipate even at an early stage, the pathway you're going to get to make sure that you don't get a major disruption to your cash flow that has a dramatic downward impact on your business. So now that I have put you at the edge of your seat to listen to this podcast, let me tell you about Nick. All right. So, and first of all, let me say, hey, everybody for that are watching, let Nick wave his hand and, and say hello, because this is, Hi. A, thank you, available on audio, on podcast, on all the different platforms, but also on YouTube. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about Nick so you understand. So he's an experienced operational technology leader with a deep focus on enhancing customer relationships. Currently, he is the president of Rebar Technology Solutions, LLC, and which is a subscription management software services. Rebar Technology Solutions was created to help companies needing support with subscription technology operations Nick and his team of 12 have processed billions of dollars in transactions. His expertise brings his clients improved revenue and reduced expenses while implementing the systems and that scale faster with greater stability. Rebar Technology has a leg up in the financial technology realm. He's offering his clients extreme customization and enhanced customer relations to help avoid getting stuck with a vendor that does not scale. There is no doubt that e-commerce is exploding during this time, right? We're in a thing where everybody's, everything's mm -hmm. done online and subscription fatigue is inevitable. Everybody's there's now actual services out there that say, let me go analyze your checking account to tell you the things that you're paying right. for and 
we're I'm constantly going through a checklist like, oh, do what, what is that? Right. Yeah. And uh, and Nick's going to talk to us about how to engage effectively with your consumers and, you know, really understand the vendors that you're using and, and shortcuts that you may be taking because they, they seem great, but where they could lead to trouble down the road. So with all that, thank you very much. And welcome to the show, Nick. Awesome. I'm, I'm excited to be here and dive into those topics. So great. So we always have to explain sort of, you know, how, how did Rebar come about? Uh, how did you come to, did you, were you on one side of the equation where you had a, a fatal business impact of some things that you learned that you now solve the problems for? Talk to our audience about how you came to understand this uh, and, and being able to be a, an expert in these problems for entrepreneurs that are, are faced with the subscription model as part of their business. Sure. Sure. Happy to do that. Yeah. So I've been in and around subscriptions and payments for about 20 years now. And like so many other of my colleagues that are in this space, we didn't exactly set out to be here. We just kind of found ourselves in this domain. But, uh, you know, I started working for an organization called Affinian Group, uh, which is made up of a bunch of different companies about 20 years ago. And when I came into that organization, I came in it actually from the accounting side and found myself somehow suddenly responsible for the department that was known as billing operations within that organization. And as a a business that really ran subscription related programs, so think um, insurance was a big uh, product of ours, um, travel clubs, um, uh, discount savings clubs, identity theft protection, uh, credit monitoring, all of those types of services were products that Affinian had. So, I found myself in a situation where I was managing a team that was responsible for the billing and collecting payments on all of those recurring customer relationships, which is what we really had there. And and in many respects, Affinian was a a third party administrator of these programs that were marketed through other people. So we were actually acting on some other organizations behalf with these customers, but we were processing, including recycling transactions, over a billion unique transactions a year. And we operated about six different unique systems that did our billing and payments. And then we worked with over two dozen different acquirers or the ones that actually did the payment processing on the other side of it. So it was a highly complex environment, a lot of moving parts, a lot of recycling, as I talked about and different compliance related initiatives. But because I grew up there, I didn't know any different. I didn't know that I was actually learning a pretty valuable thing that would kind of dictate the rest of my career. But you know, at the time it was, it was the job that I had or the job that I was given. But, um, you know, through that, through that experience, I learned all about payments, how payments work, specifically e-commerce and subscription recurring payments, which have very unique needs and requirements compared to retail transactions or card present transactions that we're all pretty accustomed to. Um, but that was really where I, I grew up and learned it all. And, you know, through a lot of initiatives to really optimize those payments, to make sure that we were collecting every possible dollar that we could, um, we were reducing our expenses in any places that we could, you know, renegotiated uh, acquirer agreements, um, other vendors that we were using was just really entirely focused on operational optimization um, around that. And so I was there for about 11 years and, um, you know, all, all around billing and payments there and, and just so, so much uh, valuable knowledge gained there and, and contacts in the industry too. I mean, we certainly uh, did a lot of interaction with trade groups and things like that. So when I when it was time for me to leave Affinian, I came over to WCAPR Consulting Group, uh, which is a consulting firm that works with merchants on retail systems, payments technology in both 
physical uh, brick and mortar as well as e-commerce and recurring. So I came, I came over um, and started working with merchants and advising them on the types of things that I did at Affinian, um, helping them optimize their, their payment systems. And what we started seeing um, working with these different merchants were there's a lot of different vendors that you work with, whether that's your payment processor or acquire down through, you know, billing, uh, billing systems and, and payment systems and everything that manages subscription lifecycle is that as your business moves up the chain, scales up, becomes more complex, different ways that customers can come into you, different currencies, different countries that you might um, play in, you know, just becomes more complex. Some of these vendors can only work with you to a point and then you outgrow them. They can't handle your scale. They can't handle your complexity. And so many times we found that a merchant had to work around what that vendor's SaaS platform was actually able to do. They just hit a wall and it was then it was on the merchant to really solve the problem. And from our perspective, we were like, aren't you, aren't these vendors, shouldn't they be solving the merchant's problem? Not really throwing it back on their plate to be like, no, no, this is your problem. You figure it out, you know? Um, so that was really the, the kind of the, if you want to call it an aha moment that we went, there's a better way to do this. Um, you, you know, the, the alternative to going out and buying your billing and payment system is to build it, right? To just go from the ground up, whether you use our, your internal IT team or you go out and farm it to um, a different third party to build it for you. In any event, you're talking about years of effort and um, usually millions of dollars to build a system like that. Right. And in a lot of ways, you're reinventing the wheel, what others have already done before you. Um, so we built our system um, in a way that is highly modular, that we can plug and play different components of it together um, to really develop a customized application for each one of our clients. No, no two systems that we deploy look exactly alike. They're all customized in some way. They use unique modules of ours. But we really take a consultative approach to assessment. Um, as you can imagine, coming from a consulting company, we, we like to really sit down and understand their business, how they operate, what their challenges are, and, and of course, their growth plan too, right? Not just how you look today, but what do you think you're going to be in one, three, five years down the road, and really help map all that out. And then once we do that, we take and plug all of these different components together, we put them in a unique cloud-based environment, and we run and operate it for them. Uh, so it's very much a managed service in that regard. But you know, unlike what I would say typical SaaS does, which is, hey, we're going to provide you software, you use it. Instead, we take the kind of the flip that thing on its head and say, we're going to get to know you and we're going to instead develop and deploy a system that's very unique to your specific needs, which makes a whole lot of sense in the mid-market and enterprise um, size uh, organization. And that's really yeah. where we're <clears throat> So let's talk about sort of like how you get there and kind of how, you know, because I mean, I, I don't know what the percentage is for how many companies are SaaS based, but it's like it, it's almost become so second nature to a business model that companies have. And of course, for those that aren't don't know what we're saying, it's SaaS is software as a service. So it's it's software that people are subscribing to. So Netflix you're right. getting streaming video as a service that's built every 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 month. Uh, you get uh, some of your application software. You're using a CRM. You're using Mailchimp, for example. That's software right. as a service. You know, if you're using, uh, you know, even my platform that I record my podcasts on is right. software as a service. 
And so where it gets into, there's just all kinds of things. Plus the ones that are subscription services, right? So subscription services are where you're subscribing to a benefit that you're going to get every month. Most people would think of magazines as that, but now there might be an online magazine that you're getting or you're uh, subscribing to uh, an automatic shipment of pet food, or like I just recently signed up for flea treatments for my, my animals for, you know, to automatically deliver that to me. So I don't have to remember, I can just do it every month. So all of those things are part of what a financial system on the back end is tracking and automatically paying all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so sometimes people will get started because their CRM offers a merchant service. And it'll have a little feature in there. Do you want to have them bill monthly? Do you want to auto bill them monthly? And one of the things you told me very first on, and I know I have been, um, I've done this to other companies, and that's where the billing company might be and what's in their system is different than what they're marketing themselves as. So you see on your, your credit card statement or on your checking account, well, what's that company? Right. I don't remember buying anything. And like my company's Cougar Grand Capital Holdings, but for a long time, um, all my stuff was marketed as Launch FN Services, Launch FN. So I would always have to remind people that the, on their bill, it's going to say Cougar Rand, yeah. even though they thought they bought it from Launch FN. So talk about that yeah. as, a, as a common problem and the, reaper, and the things that people don't get, small businesses, owners don't get, how Visa, MasterCard, and those guys view those complaints when somebody says, I don't recognize that business that's on my chart, even though it could be very legitimate charge, but what happens? Yeah, it's certainly a problem out there and it happens more often than people realize. And unfortunately for for businesses, it's not a problem until it becomes a problem. Um, So specifically there, uh, what we were referring to at the time was these um, chargebacks, which are a situation where a consumer sees a charge on their account They go to their issuing bank or the bank that issued them the credit card says, I don't recognize this charger. I didn't make this uh, payment and therefore starts off this process that begins with a dispute and often turns into a chargeback. But that chargeback goes all the way back to the merchant through a lot of channels to get there. But that merchant is charged back the amount of money that they debited from that particular consumer if they don't win the chargeback. And in many cases, they do not. Um, From a Visa, MasterCard or or, uh, a payment network perspective, those are viewed as a negative thing, right? And money was taken, it was unauthorized, and so it was taken back. Um, and so they actually have um, parts of their rules that address this specifically and have levels of chargebacks against sales that are deemed acceptable. Um, roughly around 1%, they, they vary, but um, roughly they don't want more than 1% of your sales to become chargebacks. And if you start ticking up towards that rate and, and God forbid go over, you're going to get on a radar with these organizations that cause them to question your practices. Um, and they will go, they will end up coming to you and you will have to answer questions around why do you think this happened? What's the confusion in the consumer space? What are you going to, going to do to mitigate this problem? Um, and if you don't resolve it within a certain period of time, number one, it'll start turning into rather material fines um, to you as a business, and then eventually could result in revocation of your processing rights. Yeah. Um, so any, all of these customers that you've gone out and acquired and done all of that hard work, if you're not able to bill them, you are literally dead in the water. Um, so it can have a, a massive impact uh, on an organization if it's not properly addressed. And unfortunately, 
what we see is time and time again that the merchant doesn't even know it's becoming a problem until it is a problem. Right. Um, because when they were small and they were growing, they were just concerned about sales and getting people in the door. And so, um, you know, they, they didn't know that the chargebacks that they were starting to trickle in started to trickle in more than more. And then they became a problem. And then their payment processor reaches out to them because Visa reached out to the payment processor and said, hey, you've got a merchant that's got a problem. Um, and what you were talking about at the beginning there is a common cause of that problem is when you know, you get these 40 characters on a billing statement that you can actually put in some description of what the charge was for. And sometimes there's a disconnect from a consumer perspective on what does that billing descriptor say and what do I know I signed up for? Uh, we've seen a lot of situations where the merchant operates as one entity or maybe as, you know, the parent company. And then what shows up on a billing statement is a, uh, a product specific name or vice versa. And there's no correlation from, from a consumer's mind of, of those two companies or those two names, right? They don't know that those are one and the same. They just see a charge, don't recognize that name. And it's so easy to call your bank, to go online and say, click, I don't know what that charge is. I mean, it's easier now than it has ever been before. Right. And that, you know, has, has blindsided some merchants. They just, you know, all of a sudden started getting these floods back in and, um, you know, they're get, again, getting these notices from Visa, MasterCard, or American Express and are like, ah, we didn't even know we had a problem. And unfortunately, if that's when you start to learn about it, you're already way too far down a path because turning that ship, you know, writing it and, and getting those chargeback levels to come down, you, you can't change it overnight. You can't even change it in a month. It takes months to put new processes in place to fix billing descriptors in a way that will have, you know, lasting impact and, and get you back down below those levels. So that, that's one of the situations where we see, unfortunately, you know, come up um, that, you know, just kind of come out of nowhere and, and can affect merchants negatively. Okay, so there it's a so let's put a stake in that because we're going to come back to sort of your like your food chain of or of, you know, your, how you do that. But so so piece of one of the elements is a growing pain of of getting started in one way and then you know over time it's sort of evolving and realizing that you have this disconnect i mean even back when i was in ibm and we were things were very you know manual there was a whole group that was try that would work on making sure that the payable and the receivable information was the same because ibm couldn't process payments or a big company couldn't process an invoice from IBM because there was a disconnect on, right. on that piece of it. And that was just looking at pieces of paper and we had to just go and get it, you know, manually connected. And now you've got the speed of light at which transactions would happen. And you, like you say, you get down the road. So mm -hmm. kind of put the stake in that. The other thing that becomes a big issue when it comes to these software services and how they're built and subscription agreements is the, is the, um, uh, the, the uh, conversion of funds, right? We talked about before about how dollars to Canadian or just how, you know, when you're, when a company grows and they're starting to work in, in multiple denominations, multiple, you know, um, uh, fiscal amounts or multiple monetary amount or monetary, I'm kind of kept trying to get mm -hmm. the right word here, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like how do the, the, the operating system has to do that? And in the world of e-commerce, you can be international without even realizing that you're as international as you right. are. And yeah. sometimes it's like they, they used to try to prohibit it because it wouldn't take a credit card that wasn't from that country, but that right. can be a growth limiting factor. So what are some of the things that an, that an, in, an entrepreneur 
needs to be anticipating if they're really going to be truly an e-commerce platform or truly going to do something that may not just be products moving across border, but is delivery of an electronic value that somebody has subscribed to across the border. Yeah, it, it's it's easy to make the assumption that once you're online on the World Wide Web that you're suddenly a worldwide company, and, and that's just really not the case for a, a whole lot of reasons. Um, if you look at the front end of it, um, from a payments perspective, if, if you start wanting to actively go after customers in a, in a country outside of your the one that you're in, so if you ask if you're even going to Canada or someplace like that, one of the biggest things that impact conversion is to present the, the payment in that person's native currency. If they start seeing something that they're not used to or, or can't translate, um, the, the likelihood that that customer is going to convert and do the final step and hopefully the process, which is to make the payment, significantly goes down. And we've seen that in situations where just by using IP address or something like that and converting that currency into something that they, uh, that they expect, or at least giving them the option to do it, can have big impacts on, on conversion. So getting those sales to even happen. Um, on the backside of that, if you're able to get the customer to put in that credit card or whatever payment mechanism, your payment acquirer and, and maybe even the network, Visa, MasterCard or the issuer of the card, there's a lot of what you don't realize when you hit submit online is there's a lot of decision points in that process to when it comes back and says approved. Um, your, your, your mer the merchant payment processor first has to approve the transaction or at least validate it to make sure that, hey, all the right information is here. It gets passed through Visa MasterCard networks, which is another layer of uh, you know, potential where, where it could fail. But the most common place it fails is on the issuer side, the one that issued the actual card. So by the time they get a transaction, they look at, okay, what's the amount? Who's the merchant? Um, did they input CVV code, you know, the three digits or four digits on the back of the card? Did they put in billing zip code and does that match the billing address that I have for that particular consumer? Does the name match? Does the address match? And then where did it come from? Um, did this come from this country? You know, if it's, if it's going cross border, like I'm trying to buy an American website from the UK, that issuer may go, wait a minute, that looks like fraud. And so they could shut it down for those reasons. And speaking of fraud, you know, there's all kinds of other reasons that AI and machine learning now is rejecting transactions for what it thinks might be a fraudulent transaction. So there are so many decision points, you know, after that submit button, before it comes back where a transaction can fail. So, you know, awareness of what all of those things are is, is, is part of the game, but then knowing what you're able to do to, to affect that is certainly important. And when you're a startup, right, you're trying to get sales in the door. And if one out of 10 fail, eh, so what, I can kind of move on to the next one. It's not all that material. When you start scaling up your business and you're collecting millions right. of dollars each month, going from an, even in, you know, 90% collection rate to a 92% collection rate by optimizing your payments can add significant dollars to the bottom line. And is why that's all the more important, you know, as you scale up your business to make sure that these billing and payment processes are just working at their peak. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know, it used to be, and I don't even know if this is still the case, but you would hear uh, entrepreneurs say, well, and we are designing it with a double byte character set so that we can do international transactions. Sure. 
I feel like it's much more complicated than just yeah. being a double bike character set. Is that right? that, I mean, that's that's one of the equations, but you know, your, your acquirer needs to enable you for international payments. And you, like I said, currency matters. How, how are you accepting the transaction and what currency? And then how does it settle on the back end, even if it's accepted, right? You are you is your acquirer going to convert all of that to to local funds? Or are they going to keep it in country and settle to a local bank account? All of those things come into play as well. Yeah. So okay. So so then as you're going through that, so that's that part of it. So um, um, as you can, you're continuing to to grow through this process, and people have adopted some kind of merchant. Um, service piece and they understand there's some of these problems what's uh, there there it's like the, oh i remember now there's like scale the scaling things that have to be factored into this that sometimes become a problem so like i know like i rarely will do a free trial because mm -hmm. i know that they put your credit card in and then you can cancel at any time but I always forget to cancel, even though I put a sticky note on the calendar right. and I just really wanted to try it. I wanted to get access to this one thing. Right. And then there's things associated with like when they're setting up their pricing model, are they going to do this freemium that then you get added services or is it a free trial or is there a discount if you get it now? You know, all of those types of things. How do you store your data? Because now you have all of these issues with concerns about, uh, you know, fraud and hacking of data. Right. So what are some of the things that are that that are you have to think about ahead of time? Because you can't just if you're going through, let's say, Stripe or Square or one of these things like that, do they help you plan all that stuff in and figure that stuff out? Or is it responsibility to figuring all that out at the, at the, like the inception level when I'm signing up for that merchant service and I'm doing my business model and, and then I can get, I, I might get into a situation where I did it one way where I started with free trial, yeah. but now I don't want to yeah. do a free trial. I want to do a freemium and a premium I had to start all over again. Right. right. Talk about some of those quandaries you see entrepreneurs get into. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was touching on this a little bit before, but you know, software as a service so many times present presents itself as software, right? This is what our system is. This is what it does. And then you, the merchant are going, well, does that fit what I do? Right. Um, I have to look at that package, look at my, my product, the way I offer it, do I offer it monthly, quarterly, annual, or just one way? Do I offer it, you know, credit card? Do I do ACH? Do I have other alternative payment methods that I'm, that I'm allowing? But like, does, does that then software provider meet all of those needs or not? Kind of check all of those boxes. That's incumbent on you as the merchant to figure that piece of it out. And then if you decide that this particular platform is good for me or is the right solution, how do I integrate with it, right? Is it a plug-in on a, um, you know, a hosting site that I'm already using? Does it offer a plug into my CRM that I'm already using like Salesforce or something like that? You have to look at all of those things. Like what does this integration look like? And what we see is that you're oftentimes your IT team or, or your product leads have to become experts in that system. Like they have to figure out how it works. It's quandaries and quirks. And believe me, every system does. <laughs> they all do, you know, they all work a little bit differently in some way, but you got have to become an almost an expert in it to, do, to know how to take what the way it works and plug it into, into your business. And 
I, I like to say that our approach flips that the other way around. Okay. It's, it's tell us about your business. Don't worry about our system. Don't worry about what it does or how it works or how you integrate with it. That'll, we'll talk about that later. But how do you work? What are the ways that you uh, interact with the consumer, how you engage with them, how you expect them to pay? Not only now, but it's very important to ask that question about what does that look like a few years from now? And sometimes that's us even advising them on what's coming down the road, you know, what to kind of expect in terms of, you know, the payment mix of what consumers, how they expect to pay in the U.S. versus Canada, Latin America, Europe, whatever the case might be, um, so that you can get in front of it, right? We all want our systems to be flexible and scalable so that, yeah, what it does today will support me tomorrow as I try to scale my business. Um, and there's, there's no two that are exactly alike. Certainly when you get to, you know, the, the midsize and enterprise type merchants, no two work exactly the same way. So we like to sit down, understand what that is, document these use cases enough that we can go, okay, here's how we can set up our system and manage the service for you that it does what you need to do today and what you're, what you're going to need to do tomorrow. And that, that's again, where I think really what differentiates us compared to others, others out there where it's, it's more of the, Hey, build it and they will come. We're like, no, what, what do you need? And we will deploy that for you. Um, that, and that's, that's really how I think our approach is, is different. So when I, cause like I've worked with clients and they're going to go hire a software development firm to develop their SaaS business mm -hmm. and it's going to have a freemium, a subscription. They intend to have these conversion things, upsell, you know, all that kind of stuff. Do, do development houses typically have that level of skill to anticipate the financial backend or are they really kind of going in and plugging and playing components and trying to put together, you know, they're using the pep, the piece from this and a piece from that. And they're put piecemealing it all together with their kind of bow on top. And then that's where things break down. And, and within that context, then, because you don't do GUI interfaces, you're not doing that piece of it. Mm -hmm. So at what point should a entrepreneur say to their development house, well, you need to go work with these guys to do that back end or just develop it up to, you know, this point in the pro in the thing and then plug this other stuff in. Talk about a little bit how you inter how you interact yeah. and work with the software developer that an entrepreneur may have um, decided is going to be the best one to design their type of application. That's, that's a really excellent question. And I think the, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, is, is billing and payment a differentiator for me? Is the way that I'm going to offer this to my consumers and allow them to, to pay and interact with me something that differentiates my product? The answer for most merchants to that question is no. Payments is just a necessary thing. It's, you know, I need to be paid, but my product is streaming service, OTT streaming service, or it's a box of the month club, or it's insurance, or, you know, whatever that is. Consumers just expect payments to work. They don't view it as a differentiator. They don't view it as, you know, anything special. It's just kind of something that's necessary. I have to give you my credit card, right? Um, so, especially when you're in startup mode, if that is not a differentiator for you, and you're certainly on a marketplace like Shopify, WooCommerce, or something like that, where you're building your store there, you know some of the plugins and, and inherent uh, billing and payments capability that it, that is there does make sense for you. That's out of the box. That's you know, click a couple things online to enable it, and and you're pretty much off and running, right? They've there's, there's so many great tools for that. 
Um, and that may be the right answer for the first two years of your business or something like that. But where, where somebody like, uh, like we come in or when the conversations with the software developers come into play is where payments are an integral part of our overall offering because our model is just so custom. It's so different than what something yeah. that's out there that it, it's foundational. And I think a good example of that is anytime where you have, um, you kind of do more um, custom build of a plan of a, what a recurring arrangement is going to look like. So the customer can do a lot of different add-ons, um, select this and not that. I want, I want to deliver it bi-weekly and I want my billing date of the month to be on the fifth. And, you know, there's rate, maybe rateability and usability that goes into whatever that recurring payment is, um, depending on how much you use the product or service. Um, so, you know, how much data, data plans and things like that, you know, might come into play. Um, whenever it's that, there's that level of rateability, then that's more where you got to ask yourself, all right, this might be something that's core and foundational to our business model that makes sense for us to build it or go to somebody, frankly, like us that can be so flexible that they can accommodate a lot of different uh, models. Yeah. Somebody that's going out with one product, one way, monthly, one plan, there's a lot of solutions for that. Sure. But there, there's plenty of others that aren't and they view that as you know, core to, the, to their, their service offering that should should really take a deeper dive into that than than the average yeah so so now but you guys aren't a merchant processor you're not global payments you would be Correct. interacting with global payments for exempting and and Correct. and being the bridge if you will for how yep. the front-end application of the business works with the merchant service its way in the exactly background. exactly okay and then uh so because like I have a, a company that I'm working with that their part of their value proposition is going to be a portion of, or they're going to get credits, if you will, towards purchasing other services. Okay. Right? And so mm. there's like there, it's a, it's financial, but it's not actual finance. Then they can buy more credits. Okay. And I, I mean, like right there, it's setting yeah. up. That's a unique thing. That's going to be it very is. complex. And it's yep. like, I, I told you, know, I, I, uh, there, as soon as we're done and this thing goes live, we're going to, I'm going to be saying now, what, listen to this video, watch <laughs> this video. You need yeah, to listen yeah. to this because you need to factor that in. I think a lot of times um, entrepreneurs, just assume that it's going to be figured out or developers kind of know this stuff or the merchant knows right. you can click this. I want this feature and this feature and this feature. And then the merchant's going to automatically put some of those attributes into the way yep. you interact with your customer. And it's not that at all. So yeah. given, cause like we have investors, you know, and you sit there and when they go to their due diligence questions, they'll say, or the follow-up questions after a pitch, they'll say, you know, well, what's your going to be your churn rate? What's your mm. stickiness, your retention factor? What's your percent? They always like to ask those questions. But within that is that next thing we're coming back to our first stake in the ground, right? Because they, they don't um, they don't really understand the impact of a churn. They, they think that people decide not to continue subscribing because they don't find value in that service anymore, their needs have changed, but there could mm -hmm. be all these other factors and they try to measure retention on, oh, there's value in this versus, you know, these other sort of things. So what would be a question that investors should be adding to their list of review of a SaaS product that says, you know, I don't even know how to yeah. frame the question. So what yeah. would be the question or something they would 
to just to know yep. that that entrepreneur realizes this is a design feature, an operational issue, mm-hmm. something that they're going yeah. to have to address at some point in time. And this is sort of when that magic number, a thousand subscribers, 10,000 subscribers, or this many a charge back or, yeah. or, you know, when, at what point should it become something that they have to, before it's too late, before it costs them business, so what, what's the idea that they need to be thinking about that they know they're going to need that level of complexity and what's an indicator that it, that they should start the process? Yeah, uh, good one there. And, and this applies really to any subscription best business, certainly SaaS-based businesses, but anybody that's got a, a recurring model. Um, churn rate is a big one. Churn for sure. So you're getting customers to come in, you're getting new enrollments. And by the way, that's an important metric to track too. What's our you know average enrollment? But why are customers leaving and when are they leaving? How long are they staying on? Is it happening within the trial period? Is it happening in the first month post-payment? Is it happening three months, six months, years down the road, whatever whatever that is, you should understand what those churn rates look like. And then to, to drill, to be able to drill down into that. And the two main categories of churn are voluntary and involuntary. The voluntary reasons being, of course, customer doesn't see value. They've called in to cancel. They are actively participating in not being a customer anymore. All of the involuntary ones are anything else that might happen. And so you might not offer a product anymore and have to cancel customers. Or the most common thing is you're unable to collect payment. So you try to process that payment against the card and it comes back as a harder soft decline. So, hey, this account's closed anymore. This credit card's been closed down. Or on an ACH, we tried to debit the account, insufficient funds. Um, so those, those churn rates due to those reasons to be able to drill down into it is very telling. Um, if you're seeing a very high level of, you know, customer cancels due to non-value, well, that should certainly tell you something about your product. If it's customer calling in because they can't access the product or, um, don't remember signing up for this, right. They're just calling cause it's an 800 number on their billing statement. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that might be another indicator of a disconnect between a billing descriptor and a, um, you, you know, like whatever they signed up for. Um, we've even seen pretty unique situations of someone making a purchase on a card, but they're not the one that pays the bill. So maybe a teenager or, you know, someone young and on their own has, you know, their parents' credit card and they're charging things and the parents are going, wait a minute, I don't know what this is. Uh, so we've seen instances of that. So, you know, those disconnects can certainly come into play. So again, churn rate, uh, very, very important. You know, lifetime value looking at it, you know, uh, of how much are we actually able to collect from a customer once they become a customer? If they stay on for three months, six months, and whatever our uh, billing frequencies and mechanisms are, what does that look like against our product costs? Um, at least the fixed costs that you can attribute to a, a specific customer, because that varies greatly by industry. Um, you talk about um, things that have a very high cost associated with them, and, and Box of the Month clubs are a good example whether that's, you know, the food services, the dollar shave clubs or clothing, those types of things, their cost to fulfill, procure and then fulfill that to a customer is is pretty high. So they want to know that this payment is good before they even ship it out the door. Um, So being able to track all of those things. And then as we've touched on, again, chargebacks and disputes, knowing those rates, you know, getting a view on that very early on and continuously monitoring that really, really important because chargebacks, number one, are expensive. Um, there's, there's the fee, not only do you have the money taken back away from you as a merchant, but there's a fee associated with it too, which can be rather substantial. 
Then there's the cost to even dispute a chargeback if you want if you want to do that, if you think it's worth your time to dispute a chargeback rather than just accept it. And then if, like I talked about before, if you start to get into excessive chargebacks, get on these monitoring programs, the fines and the fees that go along with that, it can add up really, really fast and be very detrimental to your business. So purely from a you know financial perspective, those are some key metrics around churn, chargeback rates, enrollment rates that and lifetime value that I think are really important to take a look at. Yeah. So, you know, with an indicator, I think you at one point used the say 1% of your transactions are charged back or something like that is right. so would you be looking at so like a, a key indicator of measurement is if you got to a quarter of a percent then there might be something or I mean what would a business expect that they're going to automatically this is if you're doing things as good as you could you're still going to have this amount of chargebacks yeah it, so it does vary by industry that is that is not uh, you know, one size fits all for sure. When it comes to things that are merchants that are in higher risk categories, um, so dating sites, dating apps are higher risk categories, their chargeback to sales rates are probably going to hover close to that 1% rate. Um, but that's normal for their industry. Uh, but if you talk about insurance, um, that has a very, very low uh, chargeback rate. So you should be under, you know, 0.1% um, in that. But what's more important than anything is your trend. And you're looking for anomalies in the trend. If you've been at 0.1% and you look at it over the past 12 months and you're gradually ticking up, that could be attributed to a lot of things, but you don't want that trend to continue you know, uh, on its way up. It, it will eventually become a problem. So those trend analysis is where it really becomes important, not just the 1%, but where, where are you at compared to where you've been in the past? And you know, historical data is, is gonna be your key there to knowing uh, kind of where you're headed. Yeah. So it would be the, the question for an investor to ask an entrepreneur is, is as simple as what have you looked into what your merchant service is, how they're going to handle the flexibility of payment options for these credits, like in that example, yeah. or, you know, a straight sub monthly subscription. Have you looked into that? Who is handling that? And if the entrepreneur you know, I don't know, then they know they have to go do that. Or they say, well, my software development firm is going to handle that, but they just have made an assumption that the software development firm is going to handle that. You know, where, you know, is there, is that as simple of a question that an investor could get to get an indicator, whether the entrepreneur needs some more educating on the complexity of these topics, these, these plans? Yeah, it, it's tough to come up with an, an objective question there, but I think certainly a subjective one that you can ask is, do you have a relationship with your payment and billing vendors? Do you view them as a strategic vendor? Um, there are absolutely different payment processors out there that specialize in different areas, namely card present, card not present. So physical brick and mortar versus e-commerce. But even below that, you know, they, they become very vertical specific petroleum versus uh, QSR versus subscription and e-commerce. And yes, those are actually two different things. And 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 the, the payment processors that specialize in subscription and recurring payments, I mean, they're not only do they have other merchants that do that and they speak that language, but they are keeping on, tr on top of the uh, industry requirements around it. And, and there's different requirements for when you do recurring transactions versus uh, retail or one-off payments. So you, you want to have a partner there that really understands that space and is there for, for you in the long term. Because unfortunately, what we've seen, again, mostly through consulting engagements, is 
they're saying our, our payments, number one, they cost a lot. We are on Visa's radar for chargebacks or, you know, we're, we just don't have the collection rates. Like we have a very poor collection rate on our, our recurring customers on how much we're collecting. And in a lot of cases, what we find is they are working with a processor who does not specialize in their space, who doesn't know their unique needs or the needs of others in that space. And so we, we find them a new one. Uh, we, we go through an RFP process. Um, not only does that more than likely save them money, um, but it can actually make them money in the end too, by being with the right processor, who's able to help them optimize those payments. Um, yeah. So that can pay dividends. You want to be with the, the right partner. Okay, very good. So as we start to round the bend here, let me let everybody know how to find you on the World Wide Web. Rebar Technology, R-E-B-A-R-T-E-C-H-N-O-L-O-G-Y.com technology. So, uh, uh, so when is the ideal time to come to Rebar Technology, to come to Nick Frederick and say, <laughs> You know, I mean, you got, do you have sort of some turnkey kind of videos for people to watch to educate themselves? Yeah. Should they at the very start say, you know, this piece of it, I'm working with this vendor to development. Do you have a relationship with them? Should I put you together? So when they're scoping out and starting development, they factored this stuff in properly. When's the right time to to come to, to rebar, to, to get help you know, before it's too late. Probably yesterday. Probably <laughs> yesterday. And, and I'm not just being facetious, but what we find all too often is when a merchant finally reaches out and wants to engage with us, they are down a path and they've run into some problems. And if we could have been going down that path with them, we would have helped them from getting, you know, too boxed in with some of their decision, whether that's vendor or technology decisions. So, you know, we, we, we love talking with people. We've, we've got a lot of people on our team who've been doing this for a really long time. Um, and, you know, we just love being engaged. It doesn't always have to be a formal arrangement. I just love talking to people about this stuff. So, you know, if there's questions, I encourage people to, you know, reach out through our website or find me on LinkedIn and, and, you know, ask those questions, L love to have those conversations. But, you know, we, we, ideally we come in when they are in a stage of growth. Um, you know, and, and are looking for kind of the next set. So we're expanding into other countries. We're offering new products. We're, um, we're marketing through different channels. Maybe we've been online the whole time and now we're exploring direct mail or, or something to that effect. That has a lot of implications on a subscription uh, uh, merchant. So we love to get in front of those conversations, even if it's just to advise or, you know, give pointers on what to look out for. There's certainly some resources, white papers on our website. We actually have our own podcast too. It's called Subscription Scaled. Uh, I'm one of the hosts of it and we bring people on and, and, and other subscription merchants we interview and they talk about their lessons learned. So that's a good resource too, to just listen to some of our podcast episodes because others have had, you know, great advice or things that they've run into along the way, obstacles that they've overcome. So those are all good resources to, uh, to tap into. Okay, great. And then do you guys, um, when, as far as a business model yourself, is it a combination of services? Is it modular? You just get this? Is it your own subscription? So when they get your model, yeah. now they're subscribing to it? Or is it a percentage of 
the transactions that are processed or all some pieces and parts of all of that above? It's, it's honestly some pieces and parts of all those things, and it, it depends on their specific need. We have clients who want the full service, right, and really treat us as a managed service. We do the billing and payments for them. We, we supply the technology, the people, and processes that make all of that happen. So what our technology is matters a little bit less. Like they, they say, hey, I just signed up Joe Smith. He's going to be $10 a month, and we take it and run with it from there, do all of the recycling and the lifecycle management from there. Um, we build custom front-end websites and storefronts and self-care sites that merchants can use. So sometimes we're doing that component of it. Some of our engagements are purely consulting, where you know we're there in an advisory uh uh, perspective. Um, they have their IT shop that, you know, wants and needs and thinks that they should build it. And, and there are absolutely situations where that is the right answer. Um, so we're there, you know, on an ongoing, ongoing advisory and kind of payments optimization perspective. So we engage in a lot of different ways and, you know, we can, you know, we have uh, models that support any one of those different types of, of engagements. Okay, great. So anything you'd like to add that we didn't cover, Nick? No, we covered a lot of ground there, Karen. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, if, if there's anything I didn't cover that people have questions about, I would just encourage them to reach out to me. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. And uh, I, I know I've got some folks that need to know about what you guys do. <laughs> and uh, in part to protect my own investment in those companies. And so uh, sure. thank you so much for, for being on uh, the, on the compassionate capitalist show and uh onwards and upwards absolutely thanks for having me on all right y'all stay tuned for a little follow-up on uh after this uh, uh an announcement and also to uh, please go visit kieranrands.co as well thank you nick have a great one thanks thank you for listening to the compassionate capitalist podcast radio where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a Entrepreneurs Resource Portal, providing access to dozens of lenders, offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings. It's a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit KarenRands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.